Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Hi there, Adrian here once again with you on the Designer Maker Revolution. Thank you so much for joining me. I can't, look, it's just awesome that you're listening. Love it. Today's guest, Karim Haddad, works for Thawa Valley Forge. Toolmaker, knife maker and teacher. You can go and do a class. I really recommend you do. It sounds bloody awesome. Go and make a knife for yourself, like a kitchen knife or make a sculpture. There's heaps of programs that Karim and Thawa Valley Forge are doing. It's pretty interesting enterprise that he's got going there. For Karim, the act of creating is more important than learning skills, and he tries to get people creating straight away in his classes, and goddamn, we need a bit more of that in the world, hey? Really big thanks to Craig Harris, who connected Karim and I up. If you've got somebody in your life even if it's yourself, who's really interesting to talk to, let me know and uh, we'll get them on the program. Without further ado, please welcome Karim Haddad. Take it away. Hey, Power Forge, Karim speaking. Yeah, Karim, Adrian Potter here. Hi, how are you going? I'm good. How are you? Are you ready to do a podcast? Sure. Bloody good. How did you go on the weekend with the minister coming around? Yeah, really good. He, um, He's very enthusiastic about the kinds of stuff we do here, so he seemed very interested and, um, yeah, had lots of fun. Our um, tame sheep were trying to go home with him, so that was pretty funny. He was impressed with that. Uh, he didn't want to shear it or anything, did he? Or he just wanted to... No, I don't know. He just, you know, Belinda wanted to get in the car with him and drive home. Is that the name of the sheep, Belinda? Belinda, yes. Belinda, yeah, yeah, cool, yeah. How did you get involved or how did the he or she get involved with your enterprise? Look, he was um, uh, sponsoring a group of veterans and their family members to come and do a sculpture course. So we got a grant from them, from the ACT Department of Veterans, Seniors and something else. Yeah, so he he, he sponsored us and um, came out to see how it was all going. Yeah, right. And sculpture. Yeah. Tell us about that. Sculpture, blade making. (laughs) Um, look, we, we do lots of stuff here. One of the things that we um, came up with is that, you know, not everybody likes the idea of making knives or tools or mm. blacksmithing or all these other bits and pieces. So making a sculpture is something that can be quite accessible for people. We do it by having a catalogue of different shapes that they can pick out of a little, you know, little brochure and we plasma cut them out flat out of thin sheet metal yeah. and then bash it in a wooden mould to a part of a sphere, a 70 centimetre size sphere. And then we teach them how to weld and they sort of tack weld it together and make this beautiful globe of shapes. <laughs> so they don't pick the shapes before they go, you just make the shapes and... Oh no, they pick them before when they enrol. So they say, oh, I want to do leaves or platypus or wombats yeah, or something. Yeah, and we yeah. 
break cut them out and away they go. How did you get involved in that? Sounds wonderful. How did we get involved with that? We had somebody turn up here wanting to work here that was a sculptor. Yeah. And we just had an idea that, you know, how can we get people to – how do we get people to create something that don't feel creative? And if you give them a, a, a dimension like a sphere and you give them shapes that fit in there, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. So they can be creative way beyond what their expectations are. But if you said to someone, you know, I want you to sculpt a horse out of these steel rods here, much harder and, yeah. and um, very difficult for people to start who've never worked with the material, who've never had to think about all those kinds of things, get in and um, start putting it into a shape. So this is a, you know, sculpture 101 to get people in and have a crack. Do they go on? Do they come back and say, I want to make a horse out of those rods over there that I see? I we, they haven't come and asked me for a horse, but a lot of people have gone and bought welders yeah. Um, in their sheds, so they've gone to Bunnings and bought a $200 welder and, yeah. you know, grabbed some iron and started tackling them together and they send me pictures of what they've done. Yeah. And it, people, it's unlocked something that they didn't think was possible. Uh, you'd be amazed how many middle-aged women that would love smashing metal and <laughs> welding I would, think this is the best. I wouldn't be surprised at all, Karim. Yeah. I'd I know what it's like to smash metal a little bit and muck around with the materials, and it's the most wonderful thing. I think it's one of the great things in the world. And yeah, so go on, I interrupted. I was just going to say, and the, the one that the minister came out to have a look at was with parents and their kids. So the kids are, in this case, they're 11. So they had a great chance to work with mum or dad at doing something, and we get the kids to be in charge and sort of direct the putting together the sphere and all the rest of it, and they both get to see each other in a different light. And I think that's quite a lot of fun. They have a go at welding and hammering it together, and they make this thing together. And every time they look at this, you know, this thing will last, I don't know, 20, 30, 50 years. They'll remember the time they were with their mum or dad mm. and what they made. And it's a, it's a real sense of achievement. Yeah, look, I reckon it sounds like an amazing idea. That How long would it take you to come up with an idea like that and then put it into practice and get it working? Oh, not long. We, we have lots of ideas all the time. It's, it's just, you know, the slowest part is, um, I suppose, you, you get these ideas, we, we come up with a prototype, we try and make it really quickly, yeah. uh, and then it's, it's putting up a course finding the target market that we think will go for it and getting people on it. I don't think they're difficult ideas. I think it's, you know, people really want to do stuff. People want yeah. to be creative and want to be useful. And if you can give them something they can latch on to, it's, you don't have to sell it at all. It's, people just jump into it. Yeah. How do you get involved in the, the veterans too? It's sort of by accident. Uh, we, we've been running courses here for a long time and um, noticed that a whole bunch of veterans started turning up mm. on, on their own volition. So they signed up to the course. They did a course, um, you know, through teaching them. They'll say, oh, yeah, I'm a vet. I've done this and this, and, you know, I'm not working. I'm doing that. Or um, So you find out. And at the end of it, you'd hear how how much it how, – how good it made them feel and how worthwhile they felt um, and how this is the first time in a long time – you know, maybe since leaving the being discharged, that they feel uh, valuable, um, that they're creative, and we started thinking that there there might be legs on this. There might be, um, you know, oh, maybe you could do this deliberately instead of waiting for people to turn up. 
and I, you know, I had one particular fellow do the course and loved it, and he said, look, can I come and work here? <laughs> I said, well, I haven't really got a job for you yet, but he kind of volunteered for a bit now. You know, he's been here three and a half years. Um, he's He helps a lot of our design. He's not necessarily a teacher of stuff, but he helps us with marketing and other bits and pieces. And, you know, he really gave us an insight into the, the therapy therapeutic benefits of what we do mm. that we sort of knew but didn't really pay much attention to. Uh, and then, you know, he said, so, well, let's let's get on the front foot with this. So we put into Department of Veteran Affairs some grants, uh, which we were successful in, which were great, and you know, run a whole bunch of programs. And ultimately we set up a charity that's whole job is to raise money for particular groups that are disadvantaged to come and do creative making programs. Mm. Uh, that's that's sort of got a life of its own and away it goes. Yeah. How did you get involved in making things? Well, well I made a mess as a kid, but that's about it. <laughs> um, I, look, you know, I was thinking the other day, I was talking to Dad, he, he used to always sort of tinker in the under the house and make random stuff or try and fix things. He was a very smart man and had a you know very important job in the public service, but yeah. really enjoyed working in his garden or pottering under the shed, making random stuff. And um, I'd go down there and help him, which was really good. Um, at school, I didn't do very well at making. I, was, I think I got thrown out of industrial arts in year seven for a Chinese star incident. <laughs> you didn't throw it as well, did you? You just made one. I, I think it sort of hit the door as the teacher came in. <laughs> oh, God. Um, Lucky I wasn't a bit slower and got the teacher. Oh, so Lord. I didn't really spend a lot of time in industrial arts. They challenged me, I think, for more academic pursuits. Yeah. And it wasn't until later in life did I realise the joy of using my hands rather than my brain. So um, that happened a bit later. So you did do academic pursuits. You actually – did you get a degree at all? Or? Yeah, look, I got a degree in um, business information technology. I was a systems analyst. You know, big business and computers and, um, you know, all of that in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, when it was all about to explode. Yeah. um, Then decided to leave all that behind and uh, run away to the bush and join Outward Bound. Yeah, right. And that that sort of took me on a very different tangent. So instead of being this, you know, you know, this is before all the dot-com bubble stuff and you know, the beginning of the internet, I remember the, you know, the first browser coming out and the, mm-hmm. the internet before the browsers and all of that kind of stuff. And I just realised one day that, you know, I didn't really want to end up looking at a computer screen. Um, mm-hmm. So I ran away to join the circus or Outward Bound, as it was called, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, had a living making people uncomfortable. <laughs> oh, look, tell us about Outward Bound. What is that? Um, so Outward Bound's a personal development organisation. It takes people in moments of transition in their life and puts them through a wilderness journey to help them find where they want to be. They don't tell them what, what the, that is, but when you take people away from the noise of their life and you, you know, take to the great outdoors somewhere, you know, things become very simple and answers and solutions and all of that pop out of the sky rather than, you know, the, the craziness of our lives. So I joined that in the early 90s and, um, you know, travelled all around Australia and overseas, you know, running up and down hills and down waterfalls and, you know, all these wonderful things. Sounded and, like, um, 
So, sorry to interrupt, but uh, it sounded like you're a participant as as well as uh, as an, a leader. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I always like. I think being consistent is really important. So, you know, enjoying and doing all of those things allows you to be better at what what you do. Um, mm. If you're not growing, then you can't help other people to grow. If you're not being challenged, then you can't help other people being challenged. Mm. So, um, yeah, and it, and it was great. I started off as an instructor. I ended up being there for 14 years and ended up running the place. But I had, yep. you know, a million jobs in the middle, which was really quite amazing. And I was really lucky that I, you know, had people who believed in me and thought, oh, well, look, you can do this next or you can do this next. And, you know, I'd turn around and look and I'm suddenly running the place because somebody thought that that might be a good idea. Mm. Um, yeah, it was pretty full on. So, you know, for a young person to have a lot of responsibility is um, a great way to grow up. Yeah, especially if you've got guidance as well. Yeah. You're not just well, chucked into it and said, oh, here you go, you know. Well, that's what happened as well. But, yeah, we had a bit of guidance. <laughs> Look, I'm really curious about this idea of how you got involved in that from being a, an IT professional in the early days. Like, how did your parents feel about leaving the security of work and going off to the circus? <laughs> well, look, it's only recently, you know, 40 years on or 30 years on, mum stopped asking me when am I getting a real job. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, she's very supportive and loves me and all of that. But, you know, up and I think it was only, you know, when I became a CEO, then she sort of got it that I wasn't just running around the bush having fun. Um, and she thought, oh, maybe he has got a job. And then I left all of that after. But, you know, I think now she just, yeah, she's just happy that I've got something to do. But, yeah, it's it was a big change. I mean, what what encouraged me to leave the, the dizzy heights of working in you know big business was that when I was at school I had a an experience on an outward bound program that really changed mm. uh, the way I looked at things mm. and I as a as a participant I you know I grew tremendously and it made me who I was at the time. Can you tell us about that? Oh look it was just hard it was you know one of the hardest things I ever did in my life yeah. and um, you know I went to an all-boys school. We were up in the mountains for a long time. It snowed. We had all kinds of dramas going on. It was cold. It was difficult. But we got through. And the kids that you, you know, you didn't expect to do well would do well, and all the popular kids didn't do well, that kind of stuff. I was one of the ones on the outside, and, uh, you know, I loved the environment. You know, I, yeah. I really thrived in that space and uh, and enjoyed it. And I saw the example that, you know, the, the instructors gave. I remember doing a rock climb, which I was particularly bad at, and, you know, I fell, I don't know how many times. There's one guy wouldn't give up on me. And I must have taken 45 minutes to get up this, you know, godforsaken bit of rock with ice on it and stuff. But he stuck with me. The whole group left and had lunch, but he stuck with me the whole way. And I thought, you know, what an amazing belief that person had in me who, you know, was nobody, just a participant from school. But he just wouldn't give up on me. So I thought, you know, I would like to do that eventually. Yeah. And I got distracted at uni and did all this other stuff and I worked for a bit and then I remembered how important this was and I thought, oh, look, I better go back and do that. Yeah. So I got the corporate lifestyle and the corporate vehicle for living out of garbage bags and driving a truck. <laughs> so, yeah. homeless person. It was great. <laughs> sleep somewhere different every night, you know, eat burnt food. It was good. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
I just find that really fascinating, the fact that you, you had the courage to change. And there's so many people who make things have done that. I don't know if yeah. you're aware of that, but like, I did that too, probably about the same age. And you used the word to help people transform. And I think people are after that transformation. Yeah, but you have to do it yourself. A bit like, mm-hmm. you know, you work with. Yep. You've got to go through the fire or the process or whatever it is. It's the same, same. It's not that difficult. Are the veterans uh, that you work with, are they, they're obviously returned service people, are they? Yeah, yeah. So they've been to Afghanistan and Iraq and... Yeah. Yep, Timor, all those kind of places. Yeah, Solomon's. Yeah, yeah. Are these people? Yeah, are these people sort of older? Are we talking like in their forties? Are we talking younger? Like just come back from? Uh, look, there's a range. It's a range of when people leave their service. Often, if they're older, they're quite senior in the forces when they leave. Yeah. Um, you know, so a lot of them would be in sort of thirties to forties kind of age, young families, uh, early family forming sort of era. Uh, and they're trying to, you know, they're looking for something else. They've been in the military. They're trying to get a job somewhere doing something. Some of them can get jobs. Some can't get jobs. They're trying to reinvent themselves. Uh, and, you know, transitioning from something like the military or, you know, a whole bunch of these things, you know, first responders or all those things, you're used to dealing with, you know, all this expensive equipment. People rely on you you know, for their lives, there's this great adventure going on and then you come back to the real world and people won't let you do a whole bunch of really simple things because they think you might wreck it. And that's really difficult for people. You know, they lose that sense of influence or being able to change their environment Mm. and the world wants to go past them. And I think, especially if you've seen active service and there's some pretty full-on stuff that you've seen, coming back to the world of shopping malls and commuter traffics and Traffic and going to an office is quite stressful or sports, unsatisfying. Yeah, there's no meaning or fulfilment in there, is there? None of that's right. That's yeah. What, you know, right? A... what am I doing? Yeah. Am I... Yeah. Whereas being in the Defence Forces, you would have lots of meaning. You know, you're fighting for the right cause or looking after people in war-torn countries or whatever. And, yeah, you come back and it's just vacant. Yeah, I could imagine it would be a hard thing to deal with. Is there a lot of support from government for the for people that are returning? Y- yes and no. You know, there's sort of a spectrum of how people are affected by their service. And and this is just me observing. I haven't served, I haven't been there, but I, mm-hmm. you know, I've worked with a bunch of them. But there's a spectrum. There are those that are heavily affected and there are, you know, support and therapy programs and medic- medical interventions and, You know, there's a lot of work that goes into those people and sometimes not enough. Um, But Mm. there's a group that, you know, there's a group also that they've thrived in that environment. They they haven't been negatively affected. And then in the middle is a great group of people that are lost where they don't really fall enough in to get a disability pension or they don't fall enough to get, um, you know, access to all the services or they don't. and, And they can go either way. And a lot of, I think, the work that we do here is about giving people positive hobbies or ideas that, that in, encourage a feeling of self-worth so that they they go in the right direction, they don't get worse. Um, because a lot of our, you know, a lot of our society is very toxic, is very difficult, is, you know, you see the stuff on social media, the, on the internet and the way people act and behave and all the rest of it is very 
it can be a very negative space for people. And if they don't have something, you know, a resilient thing to work on or something that affirms them and gives them a positive feedback, then they can go bad the other way. Mm. Yeah, anybody can, but especially people that have done some pretty tough things, seen some yeah. pretty tough images. Well, and and we're doing a lot more work too with um, first responders. So, yeah. you know, we found that the firings and ambos and police are seeing, you know, they've got levels of workplace stress or PTSD or whatever you want to call it. They're six or seven times higher than the mm. military because of their constant exposure. Nurses, you know, are really in, see some really full-on stuff every single day. Mm get almost nothing so you know we've started doing some pilot programs with that to show that you know it's important that we do this almost preventative maintenance on people you know giving them a chance to develop that resilience before it's too late um and i think that'll be pretty pretty interesting yeah it's still a journey all these you know you've got to take yourself isn't it yeah i mean you can provide some sort of fulfillment in your your courses and somebody's still got to work through that oh of course they do you know we we can't you know i've always learned that we just provide a space uh to make things happen we don't actually force it or have a particular agenda that says you need to do this you know you need to be this or that we just give you a space and you let it fill you know the, the student already has the answers rather than um the other way around yeah, yeah, facilitating. So how did you get from being CEO of Outward Bound into knife making? Oh, well, I started a bit earlier than that. So uh, when I was a young instructor at Outward Bound, I was posted to Western Australia, uh-huh. which is a beautiful part of the world. And the fellow who owned the land, his name was Thomas Gurner. He was a Norwegian farmer. Uh-huh. And, yeah. and he also later in his life got into making knives he used to make them as a kid and then later in his life he hurt his back and you know was struggling with that and thought oh you know what i'll go back and do that and he got right into it and became australia's first master bladesmith so he went to the american bladesmith society passed their ridiculously difficult test (laughs) and was recognized as a master and he was the guy who was the landowner so after you know be taking these school kids out up and down his paddocks and through the rivers and whatever. Um, you know, after that all gone home, I would go down and have see what he'd made. And, um, you know, I begged him to show me, begged him to show me, and eventually he decided that he might. Um, so he showed me a few things and I was hooked. I, I really loved, just like most of the people who do the courses now, I love the fact that after a hard day's work, you had something to show from it. It might be a pile of dust, but, well, no, it, it, you know, you can see something physical for your work. You go from that idea in your head through your arms into your hands into a, a real object, which when you work with people all day, which is what I did at Outward Bound, you often don't see that. You know, you can work really hard with people for days and days and days and days and days and, days and never see a result. You might never see the change that you you provide an opportunity to happen you not might never see that in that person and that can be quite difficult but with a knife you could see at the end of a day sanding that hopefully the scratches are less you know if you once you've got that initial skill yeah so it was, it was you know almost a relief for what i did during the day um it was an escape from working with 
with people in challenging circumstances. You're still involved in transformation, aren't you? You're transforming this bit of metal, this bit of steel into something that's incredibly functional and very useful. And with people, yeah, I, I can appreciate you wouldn't necessarily see their transformation. I mean, some of their transformation may not happen for years. Yeah. Like, in, in a sense, when you're working with somebody in Outward Bound as a leader, you might just be giving them time bombs that might go off in five years' time. You've, you, oh, you wouldn't even know. Of course, and that, all the time. Yeah. That happens. You know, people ask me, you know, why such a big change? I said, I tell them it's exactly the same. I'm a tool maker. Yeah. I help people make tools that they use for something else. I don't know what that something else is. Yeah. And whether it's a leadership tool or whether it's a, a hammer that they make or a knife, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. It's, it actually unlocks something for someone else to do a job with. So, yeah, it's pretty much the same. And, and the, the older I get, the more I see the parallels between the philosophies and the ideas. It's exactly the same. Yeah. Sharpening people and sharpening knives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of metaphors. You know, people are hammering yeah. on the ball or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, and right now, the kinds of, I suppose the kinds of benefits we see in even just a weekend or something for someone to come and do something, build something here, that's more powerful than maybe a week in the bush that I used to do 30 years ago. Is that right? Yeah. I think especially in our, you know, the world, when I joined out with Bound, they just discovered um, graphical user interfaces in computers. That yeah. was the world we left. So we just had a mouse and clicks and windows and solitaire and all of those things had just been invented. And that was the beginning, but we didn't have smartphones. And I sort of left OB when smartphones were invented. And we have become so virtual since then. Just the act of creating something simple is very novel. It was very, very different. Most people that come and do a course said, I haven't made anything like this since, you know, Year 7 Tech when I got thrown out for Chinese stars or something. Yeah, you know, that... <laughs> that's right. And even then it wasn't such a fun experience. Yeah, or, you know, look, I, you know, it took me three three months to make an ashtray or something or, a, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the things that we made in school were just so, I've still got it, you know, this ashtray or this box I made, or, but, it, you know, they weren't that imaginative because it was about the skill rather than the act of creating, which I think, you know, now my reaction is get people to create, you know, create as quickly as they can. They should be hammering within half an hour of starting a class kind of thing rather than learning three pages of the correct way to hold a hammer or, you know, four-hour lecture on swinging this. Get them <laughs> and make stuff. Yeah, because that's what's missing in our digital world, isn't it? It is. Well, you know, people want they want instant results. So there, there's the flip side of that too. In that, uh-huh. you know, it's easy to make a knife, or it's easy to make a blacksmith something or other. It's hard to make it good. So getting people to really spend time polishing and honing and overcome adversity, and you know, when they make a mistake, how to correct them. Um, we have a long-standing joke here that we don't make mistakes; we just make smaller knives. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not impossible. You know, we just clean it up, make it smaller, fix it, change the shape. Yeah. And, you know, there's a great lesson in resilience there for people that, you know, young people, old people, whoever, that 
yes, I can keep going. Yeah. But when they finish, go, I didn't think I was going to make it. I didn't think it would look this good. Um, it's almost 100%. I, I can't think out of the thousands of people that have gone through here, the thousands that we've had, I can't think of anyone that said, oh, it wasn't as good as I thought. I, you know, I can never remember anyone say that, yeah. which is quite Yeah, I'm, I am not surprised at all. I think one of the innate characteristics of a human being is using your hands. It's such an important part of our humanity and it's difficult more and more to get in touch with that. Yeah. We're becoming less human and more virtual. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we are in that simulation that some physicists suggest we are. I'm only joking, I don't know. So your dad was in the public service and it sounds like you grew up in Canberra, hey? Uh, I went to school in Canberra. So I was born in Sydney, was there for a few years, went overseas with dad when he did his PhD. Uh-huh. So he was doing a PhD in economics, so he went to the Philippines. Did he? Um, so we went there and then he went, um, he's from Lebanon, so I went back to Lebanon uh-huh. for a little bit. Um, he was studying there and then the Civil War broke out in 74, so we left and came back to Australia. Yep. And then we moved to Canberra to, you know, where I went to school um, and then left all of that, studied in Sydney and then packed my bags with Outward Bound, so bounced yeah. But um, funny enough, Outward Bound sort of based in Canberra, so I ended up back here and I lived the whole 400 metres down the road from Outward Bound now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know the I know the place. I knew it was near um, Kappa Cumberland. Tell us about Kappa Cumberland. Oh, so we um, when I was out about, I, I wanted to live nearby. So the next door is a, an art and craft precinct, mm. uh, and to live in the in the, the adjoining four or five houses, you have to be an art or crafts person. Yep, and. Uh, I had my eye on, you know, a couple of doors down. I thought this would be a good place to to have a workshop because I, I imagined that after I left OB, I'd want to just come and hammer in my shed and sort of escape and recover. And, um, yeah. and I was talking to a fellow who was next door in one of the sheds at Cup of Gumbelong about that, and he said, no, you should get my brother's place. I said, oh, he's, he's just made it. He, he built this house a couple of years before, and he said, oh, just wait, you know, he'll, he'll move. He'll move soon. He's always moving. He's had something like 12 houses in 20 years. So I came down and knocked on the door um, a few doors down and introduced myself, and he was a famous woodturner, um, Richard Raffin. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mentioned that I wanted to buy his house. Yeah. Um, and he was a bit taken back by that, and I said no. Um, so I came down and visited sort of once a month for a year or so and asked the same question. Yeah. And then eventually he and his wife decided they wanted to move closer into town and said, and I know you keep knocking on the door asking whether you want to buy it. Do you want to buy it? I said, yes, I do. Yeah. So I, we, we were so, you know, my partner and I, we had a couple of young kids. We, I signed the papers the day my second, my daughter was born. Oh, wow. And I remember, yeah, leaving the hospital, going and signing the papers for the house. Yeah. And we moved in, and I hadn't actually seen the whole house. I'd seen all the sheds, and that's all I wanted. You know, I had yeah. gallery and stuff like that, and so we came in here. And that was 2000. Three, 2002, 2002. And then when I got into running the, the knife-making school full-time in 2013, yeah, I thought, you know, this is good. I've got everything where I want. I don't have to do much. 
and it just got out of hand. We we started in 2013. So I've been I've been running classes since we bought the place in 2002 here, but maybe about 10 classes a year. Yeah. Very small. While I worked at Outward Bound, while I did a few other things. Yeah. And then finally left a job at another leadership place. I was burnt out in 2013, yep. and thought, right now I'm going to do it properly. I'm going to teach full time. And I thought that I only needed to teach probably 20 classes a year or 20, 24 classes a year to make my salary and it'll all be good. So we did that the first year, 26 classes. And then after a couple of years, we got up to 130. And I was like, oops. Yeah. And we ran out of space. So we had to look for, you know, what are we going to do? We can't, you know, more and more people want to come here. The wait list is going longer. A lot of people travel a long way. We don't have accommodation. Mm. So we decided to approach the guy a couple of doors back between us and Outward Bound who owned Cup of Cumberland, which was the main art centre. Yeah. We've been trying to sell it for a while, and after a sort of a long process, we ended up being lucky enough to get it. So Cup of Cumberland has been, for 30 years, was an art and craft hub in the ACT. A lot of very famous... Uh, woodworkers and potters and things had worked through there. The speaker's chair for Parliament House was built in one of the sheds there. Yep. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of really full-on stuff. It was, you know, for a long time a leading light. And we wanted to sort of bring it back to where that got. And the gallery had closed down sort of 10 years before and the craft stuff sort of dwindled out. And we, our properties next door were still doing art and craft. I've got, you know, furniture makers and potters next to us and stuff. Mm. But we wanted to... So beef it up for the knife making. So we took that on. It's been a lot of work so far. Um, but, you know, courses have tripled since then. So we're up to about 250, 280 courses a year now. We've got a staff of, I think, 14 <laughs> full-time staff. We're running, you know, multiple courses any particular day. Um, and we've got these wonderful sheds down in Cup of Cumberland. We have... You know, it's a 10-acre block, so we've got an old homestead where people can stay, an old yeah. cottage, um, yeah. and it just turned into a, you know, a huge making centre. I just think that's incredible, Karim. I really – it's um, such a courageous thing to do. That's not. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's not, but it is. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you're on something – so when we run a class, when people go home yeah. and look at what they've made, say they make a you know, Japanese kitchen knife, yeah. there's something that they've created with their bare hands that's going to last 100 years that their great-grandkids are going to say, my great-grandma made this. Yeah. Every day they use it will work and remind them how clever they are. When you have a product like that, it's, there's no wonder people are addicted to it. Yeah. You know, they want to do it. It's, all we've got to do is not stuff it up. <laughs> we make sure that we don't, you know, yeah. our teachers here, I tell them your biggest skill is being able to help people complete stuff and still feel their ownership of it. Not like that you've done it for them, you've yeah. taken it from them. You're not the great master knife maker or blacksmith or whatever, leather worker. You know, you're there guiding them, you're their coach, and they have done it themselves. Whatever shape they pick, that's their shape. So if you're tidying it up or fixing it, you cannot change the essence of what that is. But when you do that, then people are very excited about it. Yeah. You know, people coming back again and again because they experience this sense of delight at making something. They actually get it done in the weekend. They know they're going to go away with a finished product. 
not like something that's been in the shed for 12 years or something as they've chipped away at it. So it's it's not – I'm not surprised it's gone well. I, I didn't necessarily yeah. it doing well, but it's, um, you know, it's uh, it's something that's really missing in our society. It's something that the schools aren't doing anymore. You can't get it at TAFE. You can't, you know, you can't make stuff anymore easily. It's it's seen in the realms of the experts rather than in the hands of the common person. And, you know, in some ways we're trying to make these things very accessible. You know, we joke about the democratisation of art here where it's not something you have to have a degree or you have to go to tertiary institution to learn to be an artist or a craftsman. You can do it by getting a hammer and a nail and whacking away. Yeah, you're having the, a go. You're the one that decides you're a craftsman, not them. Yeah. You get a piece of paper saying, I'm a craftsman. You you are, or you, you know, it's it's what you do. Um, and I think people people are yearning for that kind of thing. Yeah. I agree. Well, I know it too. I mean, that's the whole thing about this podcast, Designer Make a Revolution. It's uh, it's about getting in touch with that, whatever that is. Yeah, it's a very powerful thing. I think it is too. I know it is, yeah. I used to tell the students um, in the classes here, I probably still do the same jokes, but, you know, I, I talk about, you know, the ability to make a tool is what separated us from the monkeys. Um, exactly. Making making a knife was the second tool we had. We had a hammer first, a rock that broke and it had a sharp edge, and we used that as a knife. And that allowed us to change our diet. That allowed us to grow our brains. The way we use tools separated us out. And, you know, it's built our civilization. It's it's so inherently linked to our humanness. When we stop being tool makers, when we stop using tools and understanding how tools make our lives better, then we lose our humanity. And and that's something where people really, I think they struggle. A lot of people have very important jobs. They go to work all day, they work really hard at the computer, they do stuff, and it's really important. But they can't see anything at the end of the day. It it disappears or it's not there, it's not tangible. They go and eat pre-prepared meals, they go and or takeaway food, they don't make the stuff themselves. So everything they're doing is not in in their control. And they feel helpless. And when you get people and you put tools in their hands or you give them an idea that it's possible, then they suddenly wake up. They wake up to being more human. And I think that's that's something that is just sorely lacking in what we do. I agree. Can you talk about steel? Have you got are you into steel? Like the different types? I used to be. I was looking at your website and I noticed the knives that your daughter's been making are incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether or not the beauty of those knives has is as important as the functionality or the sharpness or how resilient that blade is. Yeah, both. Mm. Can you talk to that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the form follows function. You need It needs to... Um, um, an object needs to work for it to be used, but it also needs to be beautiful to be used a lot. Yeah. So if you – and then beauty without function doesn't necessarily – it's not satisfying either. So, you know, use the example of a knife. First of all, a knife has to be able to cut. It's not a knife if it doesn't cut. It can be as 
look dramatic as possible with, you know, meteorites and dinosaur bone and, you know, whatever else, million layers of steel. But if it doesn't cut, it's not a knife. It's a piece of art. So when it cuts, how it cuts, how easy it cuts, the kinds of things it cuts dictates what it gets used for. But how it feels, how it looks when you do that brings an element of joy and delight mm. in using that object. And our interaction with our objects again, a part of our definition of who we are, what we do. So if you have a knife that feels fantastic, it's made for your hand, it's got a beautiful pattern, maybe you've done or someone else has done, that, you know, but it also cuts that, that cucumber or the salmon or whatever it is, it cuts it really well, then you're going to use it all the time. This is mm. my favourite knife. You know, you get back to, this, this is my grandma's knives. These are knives that, you know, she used to bring out for Sunday roasts all the time. There was ceremony about it. There was story about it. There was, you know, or this was the birthday knife that came out everybody's birthday to cut the cake. You know, there's a, that mystique about it, but there's a, you know, it's got to work. If you had a birthday knife that wrecked every cake, you wouldn't use it. And and things over time become beautiful. Grandma's knives are beautiful yeah. because of grandma. Yeah. The ugliest thing left or that worn down. But there's a beauty in it because it was grandma's. And it reminds me of grandma who's no longer there, here. I've got a knife, but, you know, she's – I've got a knife. She's gone, but I remember her and those things about her when when I used that. So, you know, those things are important. You can take them out of context. And I think, you know, beautiful things just to look at, well, that's fine. But, you know, unless, unless they're useful. You can see that with, you know, some spectacular chairs that look fantastic, but you sit in them, they're not comfortable. And you go, well, I wouldn't buy that. I would, you know, it's it's mm. clever, but you know, unless it's comfortable and pleasing to look at, well, then yeah, I won't, I won't use it. Yeah, those stories are really potent, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And, and we don't have those things, you know. The, the idea of heirlooms and stuff, whether it's furniture or knives or whatever, we don't have the heirlooms anymore. Things are disposable, and that's you know, coming back to these courses, why people get very excited. Yeah. Except they make their own heirloom. They're putting their own story into it. Maybe they bought a piece of wood from granddad's farm or maybe they, you know, from the tree out the front of their place and they put that into it. They've made that part of the story. Yeah. So where else do you make heirlooms in your life? Where <laughs> else do you make things that are going to last a, a hundred years? Yeah. And that's really quite exciting. Yeah, people you can't, aren't even buying them anymore. A computer would last a few years, a television, ditto that. It's not yeah. like in the 1950s you buy your radiogram and you expected that to last for 20 or 30 years and you'd get it repaired. So we're not even buying those hand-me-downs that can collect their stories on the way through. No, not at all. Mm, gosh, that's really, really interesting. So I've got all these questions like, would you ever use a CNC machinery? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I love using a machine. Yeah. For me, it's, you know, I've got into CNCs in the last few years because my hands don't work as well as they used to. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's an extension of my brain. It, it allows me to think of, you know, the tool solves the problem. What can I make with this? What What is it good at? What can it do that I couldn't do beforehand? How does that work? You know, and we, we're looking at all kinds of things as an experiment, as ideas. And knife makers, blacksmiths have been doing that for thousands of years. Yeah. They're always making new tools to make their life easier. So there's a, a big argument at the moment in the knife world about whether, you know, a CNC knife 
is a handmade knife? I said, well, probably not, but then is a knife that you put on a jig in a grinder a handmade knife? Yeah. Yeah, it is. No, it's not, I don't think. <laughs> you know, that could be wrong. That, that's a bit different too. I think what we, you know, the argument should be not whether it's handmade or not because we don't make things by hand. We use machines. We use grinders, power tools, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. The argument should be now about the authorship. Are you the author of the knife or the object? Have you controlled all elements of the process, whether you program the computer, whether you program that machine to do that, where you ran that machine? And that's very different to you outsourcing it. Yes, it could be it could be handmade, but you could send it off to Bangladesh for somebody to make it by hand. That's not your knife or not your object. Or, you know, put in a sweatshop somewhere to try and make it by hand. Oh, it's handmade. That's not right. I think it's it's more about the authorship we have. Are you the person that changed it from an idea into a reality? And you you contributed to all those parts along the way. Mm. It's an interesting debate. I don't know what the answer is. Um, a lot of people, I think, are really struggling with it at the moment. At the end of the day, the person that uses the knife couldn't give a rat's ass um, if the knife is working and they are... Well, I'm, I'm talking about somebody who's a purchaser here, I think. Yeah, sure, but it's also... Mm. We get wrapped up in it, but, you know, the purchaser has got to think about how much are they paying for it? Is mm. it a value? How much utility will they use will they get out of it? Aside from people paying stupid money because it's, you know, stupid money, that luxury effect, but a lot of it is about making things affordable. And that, that drives a lot of my push here is, you know, how can we make a knife at a good price and still pay our staff Australian wages. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody wanting, oh, I want an Australian-made knife, I want an Australian-made knife, I want to support local. Then I tell them the price and they go, what? But I can buy one really cheap for this. Yeah. I said, you can. And the person who made that knife is probably getting about 40 cents or $3 for their hard-earned work. And you're condoning, you know, that kind of life. And that's fine if you're happy with that. But if you're real about wanting Australian made and you want to support people in an Australian, you know, lifestyle and earning the money, this is how long it takes. And it, interesting, when people come and do a knife course here, they realise why handmade knives cost so much. Yeah. They go, wow, I've just busted my hump for two, two and a half days to make these two knives. And I can look at the ones that you guys make and think, wow, that's really cheap at $1,000 or whatever it is. You know, you get, mm. you get so that's, you know, like good handmade furniture is expensive, um, lasts a lifetime, all the rest of it. But people don't see that. They want to get the flat pack stuff from Ikea and then complain when it falls apart. <laughs> yeah, or well, they can't put it together or something. Or they can't find a bit. Oh, it's yeah. Australian, not a Chinese or something. Yeah. So you actually do have a production um, set up for knives too. Yeah. We, mm. we make more knives here than anywhere else in the country. Yeah, wow. In sunny Thawa. Sunny Thawa. Um, <laughs> sunny cold <laughs> Thawa at the moment. You know, a village of 12 houses and we're the biggest knife shop in the country. <laughs> and, and people are amazed at that. And I said, well, actually, there's not really much competition, you know, out of so, a little bit of maths thing here. You think that, say, every household in Australia has 10 knives in it, which is a, a, an understatement. And they're 10 million households. That's 100 million knives in this yeah. country. Yeah. At the moment, there's less than 2,000 knives made in Australia each year. Yeah. So out of 100 million, <laughs> less than 2,000 are made here. 
made local. Yeah, fight the power. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's like so. Yeah, we make we probably make about a thousand a year, all all up. Mostly done by hand. So we've got you know staff grinding knives and yeah. hammering knives and doing stuff. I've got a plasma cutter that helps cut out shapes if we've got to do a lot the same. Yeah. We're just starting to play with CNC machines to see if we can drill holes quicker or make something more consistent. Yeah. But then there are knives that are just completely handmade by one person from start to finish, and away they go. Yeah. Do you hardness test them and things like that? Are they? Yeah, we do. Yeah. So we do all of that on site to make sure the quality's there. Yeah. I mean, you asked me before about steel. Steel's on a, a, a slippery game. You know, people get really obsessed about the potential of a steel. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like cars. People say, what's the best steel? And I say, well, what's the best car? And they go, what yeah. So what do you want to do? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I said, well, you know, you wouldn't use a Ferrari for what a Land Rover can do or, um, you know, it has to be different to something else. Steels are just, you know, trying to work out a particular niche and the combination of that. You know, I used to get chase all these ideas and I've watched people do that. And what's interesting is what they're looking at is the specs that the steel possibly could do. Yeah. But that's assuming that the person knows how to get that out of the steel. You know, one particular steel we use here, I've used for almost 30 years, and it's a very boring steel. It's a plain high-carbon steel, 1075. A lot of people sort of poo-poo and go, oh, it's not a really good steel, we can't do this. You know, we can get, you know, a very hard knife out of it that works. It rusts, Mm -hmm. yeah, but it also gives a beautiful edge and it's consistent and all the rest of it. And it's very similar to some of the Japanese steels. But because we've worked it for 30 years, I know how to squeeze every last bit out of that. And, you know, I can do a much better job than somebody buying the, you know, some high-tech steel from somewhere and they, and they have, do a terrible job on it. They'll just end up with rubbish. Yeah. It's, um yeah, it, steel is one of those games that's just uh, really tricky to, to play. Yeah. I, I do love, one, one thing I do love is the Japanese naming method of their steel. I don't know if you know that. In Australia or in America, we, we're all complicated with numbers and letters yeah. and indicate chemical composition. But, you know, in the, the knife makers in Japan, they say, you got blue steel or blue or white Hitachi steel. And um, I said, oh, why, why is it called that? And he said, that's the paper that they wrap it in. Yeah. Well, really? I said, yeah. And then they, they say, oh, this steel here, this one's called VG10. What does VG stand for? Uh, very good. Very <laughs> good. <laughs> And then this one here, this is SVG. I said, what's SVG? Super very Super good. They won't tell you what's in that. They don't want to give you their secret. And they often won't sell it to you, but they'll tell you it's super very good steel. At least with the Australian um, and American nomenclature, you'd have like some idea of how much carbon it's got in there or something like that, eh? Look, yeah. you do, but that doesn't help you. <laughs> so, mm. You know, yeah, it'll tell you what to do with the recipe later. But yeah, I, I think you know, if we really had Australian steel, we'd have bloody good steel, good <laughs> steel, awesome steel. Awesome yeah, that's only bone Aussie steel. We wouldn't use numbers. <laughs> this is awesome steel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's what we need. Bring it on. Tell, yeah. us, tell us about Damascus steel. Oh, Damascus steel. So Damascus steel is one of the misunderstood mythological – people think it's magical. It's <laughs> – yeah, look, it's named Damascus because in the Crusades, that's where they found it, the, 
the yeah. Arabs and it, most of it doesn't come from Damascus, it came from India or somewhere else. Uh, the Japanese, look, basically what, what when they talk about it, what they're referring to is the pattern that you see on the surface of the steel, mm. um, which indicates the, you know, different metals either joined together, which is a modern way, or in the old way, how, how different things came out. And really it was, a, it was actually a, an old way of turning iron into steel. Steel is iron with a bit of carbon in it. And the process of making that by, you know, people talk about folding steel or working it basically in a carbon-rich environment, which is either a, a coal forge or a coke forge or, you know, Japanese burn rice husks on it or something like that. Yeah, right. Mm. Getting the carbon in there makes the iron harder, makes it stronger, and makes it, you know, if my steel's tougher than your steel, I can cut your sword in half and I'll beat you. Yeah. You know, that was, it was an early arms race. Um, the watering effect was, you know, a side effect, um, which shows the different things. What we call Damascus steel nowadays is called pattern welded steel, which is yep. two different metals or three different metals joined together, layered up lots of times, and you can do it by folding or cutting and stacking or twisting or something. And then once you've done that, you treat it with an acid and one steel goes black and the other steel goes silver and it shows a funky pattern. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, there's great skill in, you know, making patterns out of that that look interesting or funky. Um, some of it, I, I say skill because if you can repeat it, you're skillful. Otherwise, you, you're just lucky that you've got this cool pattern that comes out. But it's a lot of hard work, you know. To get a kilogram of steel, you might use 10 kilograms to start with and work it down and cut it and swap it, change it. And you might spend, you know, three or four days with a 100-kilo power hammer smashing this thing and heating it up and swapping it to get one little piece of steel. And then you get to the end, it's got a crack in it, and you think, oh, yeah. it's hard again. Um, but, but people think it's, you know, magical and super tough because they've seen videos of or YouTube of Japanese swords slicing through tanks or something like that. It's mostly bullshit. It, it's, um, it's pretty. A thousand years ago, or five hundred years ago, yes, it was a better steel because the other wasn't steel; it was iron. Nowadays, yeah. we're already using good steel, and by making it into the patterns, we're actually losing some of the carbon by burning it off. Yeah, and we can be making it worse. I, I like it; it's fun; it's a challenge. It looks pretty. It's a marketing thing. You know, people look at it and get all excited, and you know, you pay for the time. You know, mm. it takes a couple of days to make a piece of steel which is cool. Yeah, it does look beautiful. Yeah, oh, the, yeah. there's a very similar um, effect in timber you can get where you've got highly figured timbers and the performance of a highly figured timber is nowhere near the performance of a plain timber in often, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes. Yeah. And yet it looks so amazing uh, when it gets polished up that those timbers are selected. And uh, yeah, it's a. I had always thought that the folding and folding and folding increased its performance, the steel's performance, but uh, it's interesting, yeah. No, you've got a chance of putting a crack in it. Yeah. Well, if you don't get one of the welds, if it delaminates or it's not connected, you've got a split in the middle of it and it just shatters. Yeah, really, yeah. So, yeah, look, blacksmiths have always, you know, their arts are mysterious, it's dark. (laughs) <laughs> they're using magic there, you know, they're training, you know, fire and this and that, and it turns into a sword. That's all very exciting. But a lot of it's just superstition. And and we still, you know, because we don't have blacksmiths around anymore on every street corner, we still have that superstition and that legend about them. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's very mysterious, isn't it? And it's which is cool. Yeah. Well, you know, your resume or your, you know, your pickup line at a party, but it's <laughs> when they when they see the reality of you covered in soot all the time and spitting out black gunk out of your nose, uh. and, you know, it's ultimately despite you know all the um, the uh, romance of the, the knife making stuff. It's a really hard job, but it's yeah. you're working with materials that are going to kill you. You know, the the dust, the the kind of stuff poisons you slowly. It's horrible. You know, it's hard work. You're standing up all day, all of those kind of things. It's satisfying, but I wouldn't say it's you know one of these desirable jobs. It's um it's pretty full on. Yeah. Look, in one of the emails you sent me, you did talk about how your body has suffered. Is that something you've prepared to talk about like can you and for somebody working in the craft and it probably doesn't matter really which craft it is because you're working with your hands and your body all the time you're gonna come up against issues and yeah. um i'm just wondering how you're negotiating that well okay like the the recent thing that i've done is i i um i've cut the nerve in my left hand the ulnar nerve that goes up the the side away from your palm it, it controls the ring finger and the little finger. Yeah. And I did that in the most unceremonious fashion of tripping out of over the stairs outside my front door with a couple of coffee cups in my hand that I washed up. I don't even drink coffee. And I tripped <laughs> over and I smashed it through my palm and cut probably a two-inch gash, not even, inch and a half. Uh, but it just managed to hit the nerve exactly. And so I was in the middle of a class on the Saturday. Luckily, my 16-year-old daughter... Oh, no, she wasn't. She was was two and a bit years ago. She says, what, 15 or something? She took over the class and finished the class. Good on her. Um, and rang up the ambulance to take me away and I had bits of cup in my hand. Um, and I went and had it stitched back up. That was sort of a year and a half ago, and it didn't really work. And they did another operation last year, and they cut now. There's probably a almost a 12-inch scar across my palm and halfway up my forearm now oh, where they try to Lord. put another nerve in, they cut a hole in the back to put a nerve. But basically I've lost the use of this hand. I can't um I can't grip. I can squeeze my hand, but I can't hold anything. But when I'm holding like a, a pair of tongs, it just bounces out. So when I'm hammering mm. on the handle, I can hit hard with the other hand, but I can't with this one. Mm. Uh, and grinding is very difficult doing one side of the grind. I can grind one side of the knife fine, but I can't do the other side. So if we just had one-sided knives, I'd be good, but because um, there's a devil on both, I'm, I'm sort of stuffed. So that's been very interesting from a, um, a you know, a mental perspective about, yeah. you know, because I'm, a, I, I'm someone who leads by example. So if I'm teaching uh, or if I've got a group of teachers here, I need to be able to teach to show them. I can't just sit back and direct. So I need to be able to fix things and educate staff and, you know, work with the students and all that. And I can't really do that at the moment, which is difficult. The, the main thing I can't do for the students is I can't fix their mistakes. I actually make it worse. So yeah. while I can, you know, lecture in a class and say, you've got to do this, this and this, I can't be the coach that says, you know, let me have a look for a second. I'll just tidy that up for you. I can't do that. And um, that's probably one of the key things that our teachers must have to help people feel successful is that you need to be able to fix a mistake without it looking obvious because as soon as you make a big deal about the mistake the students made they go in this negative spiral and away they go 
So, so um, what are you doing? Like, how are you getting over that? That sounds like a. Uh, that sounds very awkward, actually. Yeah, it is. It is. So I'm trying to do my video, which doesn't really work. Mm. I'm typing badly, so I can't do Control C, Control V, because I mm. can't move things at once on the keyboard. So I have to use my other hand. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, working with my partner and with the staff about how we can make what we're doing here better. So how can we improve the the workshops? How can we? I look at things that we can buy that will fix things. I look at ideas about um, CNC stuff. I think a lot. Um, yeah. I talk a lot to you know ministers or other people about backing what we do. I try and talk to the bank about lending us money. It's never never easy, but um, <laughs> especially <yeah>. now. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. But, you know all, all of that kind of stuff. I'm uh, you know I do administration. I empty the bins. I sweep the floor. I'm just I'm just there. So it it may come back. I doubt it. I don't I don't think I'm going to get used to that. Half of it is sort of. Most of the muscle's gone, so there's whole hand and stuff, and it looks different. And people go, oh, you know, you should adapt and, you know, make this and this. Probably. I just want to know where I've got to start with first because the doctors and the physios keep saying, oh, no, it'll come back, it'll come back. But, yeah, it's been almost two years now, so we'll just see um, where that goes. But, you know, I was always – at the end of the day, I was always a much better teacher than I was a knife maker. So yeah. it's, not, it's not the end of the world. You know, it's just a different part of the world and I have to adapt and get overcome. And a lot, look, a lot of people have come and do our classes have had a lot worse happen. So I can't just sit down and say, oh, poor me. But, yeah, I just haven't. They haven't damaged themselves in your class, though. Oh, no, not in my class. No, no. I've blown that before or something. Actually, I think I'm the worst incident that's ever happened here. I think we had somebody else cut their thumb once. It's amazing for working with sharp objects and machines. Yeah. Out of thousands of people who come through here, you know, a coffee cup's the most dangerous piece of equipment we use. <laughs> Who would have thought? Oh, not, not to mention the heat, like the power hammers. Imagine putting your oh, finger. Oh, yeah. Look at the power hammers. 110 kilos, it hits three times a second. Yeah. It can hit you before you realise it and, you know, to very small bits of fruit salad or whatever you turn into. <laughs> I didn't want to think about that. Yeah, that's right. You know, you sharp objects and spinning objects and all of these things and, yep, it's a coffee cup that gets you. Yeah, yeah. But you know, opportunities come out of that. I, Absolutely. And we wouldn't have done all the things we've done. If my hand didn't get busted, I would have done something else. I would have yeah. been off and you know, my journey to become the third master bladesmith in the country. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that'll happen now. You need, uh, yeah, you do need that validation from somebody else overseas to let you know that you're doing okay, don't you? Yeah, that's an Aussie thing, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, who cares? You know, American bladesmiths, yeah, great. I mean, there's probably just more of them and that critical mass can... There is, but, yeah. you know, in the masters in the world, there's 120. That's it. Yeah, right. So we've got two. There's a few in Europe, a few in South Africa, you know, a few scattered around, most of them in America. But um, there's 120, that's it. And we've got one of our young fellows here. He's um, in his mid-20s. He's, he started working here three years ago. He's on his way to become that in two, not this year, next year he can go for it. Yeah, wow. And very talented fellow, but... Also, he's you know got an opportunity here in a well set up workshop, supportive environment, yep. um, good competition with his fellow makers here, 
to yeah. push and push and push and get better. But he he'll be one of the best in the world. He's he's in the top five in Australia already. Yeah. You know, which is amazing for someone. You know, up until three years ago, I think he'd made five knives. You know, he's very talented. Yeah, look, look, let's uh, let's name him. Let's so uh, people can follow him if they're listening. Oh, Jackson Rumble. Jackson Rumble. Yeah. Very bad at telling his own story. He doesn't do social media very well, and he doesn't do any of this other stuff. He He'll just, learn. I mean, look, you know, there's all there's times and places. He's got knives right. to make. Yeah, yeah, but you know, he's he's the real deal. There's some people that are all over social media that make rubbish. Yeah. Right. You know, he's. He's very hard to find, but you look look for him, and his stuff is outstanding. What is it that makes him different? Um, his obsession with perfection. Yeah, there you go. You know, potentially a starving artist, but most people will say, "Good enough. That's close enough. He'll make sure it is." Yeah. And it's you know, like I said earlier, it's easy to make a knife. It's hard to make a good one. Yeah. His stuff is, you know, really quite good. Even and harder to make an excellent one. Oh, yeah. So the, the American Bladesmith Society asked him to make the raffle knife. As the, he, was the, he won the award for the best journeyman. Mm. Um, so he was a level below the, the master. Yep. And um, he won that award last year when he went to America. You know, it's hilarious. For a guy who doesn't own a collared shirt, Turns up there in a blue shirt and a baseball cap. Hey, how you going? And I was making these knives that are, you know, this this raffle knife will go for maybe twenty thousand US dollars. Yeah, um, a beautiful thing. But yeah, just hey, how you going? <laughs> these classic Aussies, you know, understated, fantastic. Yeah, that not settling for second best is, I think, in any pursuit across the board, even in business, really what sets somebody apart like it's too easy to settle for mediocrity oh yeah and not go that extra bit and you do need support to do it and you need competition to keep going further if you just make mediocre something and yeah. uh, somebody tells you it's fantastic and heaps of people tell you it's fantastic and you don't get up don't get any pushback and say well hang on a seat man you know and that happens very much in the knife making world so knife yeah. making small industry in Australia. There are, there's probably, I don't know, 200 serious knife makers in the country. There's yeah. maybe you know, 20 or 30 full-time makers. Most of them are isolated. Most of them are, you know, working in their own sheds, producing brilliant stuff. But most of them don't innovate or grow or change or push themselves. It's sort of a little bit at a time. And it's strange because when we get together at knife shows, we're all in competition with each other. We're trying to sell to the same customers. So yeah. there's a, a camaraderie but a competition. Yeah. Now, what's different here is, you know, I've got a group of makers at a, at a similar level who go away and when they're, they're not teaching on the weekend. They'll make something and bring it in on Monday and show the others, and that'll fire them up and they'll, you know, they'll draw silly things all over each stuff and they'll sabotage each other's works, but they'll also go back and work really hard to make something better to show off the next week. Yeah. And, the speed in which I've I've witnessed these guys change. You know, what took me, you know, 20 years to get to a particular level, these guys have got there in two years because of the way yeah. they're doing it all time. They've not got other things to worry about. They've got, you know, every tool that they could possibly want and they've got a, a desire and a camaraderie to work this stuff out. They've all got their different things that they're interested in, but they really push them along. 
And so there's some very talented people here. You know, I, I was thinking, you know, about the master thing. If I got my masters, you know, that'd be good. But what would be better in my eyes is if two or three people here got their masters. And it's not one would be a fluke or it would be all their work. Two or three means I've created an environment yeah. where excellence can thrive. Yeah. And to me, their success is actually much more important than mine. You know, like I said before, I'm, I'm an okay knife maker, but I'm a better teacher. And if I can get these guys learning and, and pushing themselves so that when I'm not there, they'll keep going, they, you know, that's that's the key for me. That's the exciting part, the satisfying part. Yeah, it's like the coach of an athlete. Yes, that's it. And you, you want that person to be better than you. You don't want them to be as bad as you. You want them to take where you went and go further. Yeah, go further. Yeah. Maybe isolation can have its benefits too because – uh, but only if you're prepared to innovate and take chances and be creative. Yeah, but the, I mean, in our particular pursuit, this knife-making thing, there are some great innovators, but a lot of people aren't. They they go very safe. They pick safe, safe ways of doing stuff. They are very traditional. They don't embrace new technology necessarily. Some do. There's always exceptions. But mm. on, the, on the whole, you know, the stereotype of a cranky man Cranky old man in a shed is pretty much right on for who we are. <laughs> um, I don't like it when I tell him that. I said, well, I am. I don't know about you, Philip. <laughs> yeah, tr- and try and buy a knife off somebody who's a bit cranky. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, that's actually, that's a, an interesting phenomenon for us. You go to a knife show <laughs> and um, you talk to someone, say, how many knives you sold? And they said, none. <laughs> um, I said, are you happy? No, oh, not really. But I don't have to make any more, so that's awesome. Uh, and then you get another guy and said, how many you sold? And said, all of them. So why are you so unhappy? you got money, haven't you? And he goes, no, I've got to go home and make some now. Um, it's so, it's hard to make them. They, they hate it when they sell all out because they've got to start again. <laughs> so, oh, Lord. Yeah. I reckon if you're enough to cover your trip and a good dinner out, then you won, and you should enjoy that. Yeah. That's it. But, you know, I, you know, the other thing is a, a good knife maker will sell you anything. They'll sell you the tablecloth on the table if you want. <laughs> you know, the hourly rate's about seven bucks fifty for the you know, work that they produce. Yeah. yeah, look, same with woodworker, which is yep. they'll sell you the wood shavings. Yeah, <laughs> you want my shavings? Sure. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> oh Lord. Listen, Karim, bloody awesome talking to you. I really appreciate your time. Oh, that's all right. It's been fantastic. It's like from my perspective, at least, you wouldn't think that knife making can employ, you know, as many people as you do employ and have all the people around you being transformed in the way they are, the same as what your knives are, the steel's being transformed and all these people are being transformed, making a huge impact. And... um it's a, it's a great story. Bloody good on you. Thanks. But look, I think for us, it's not about the skill part. No. You know, it, it comes down to, at the end of the day, how people feel. Whether yep. they're a customer borrowing one of our knives to use and how they feel, yep. or more importantly, somebody comes and does a course and creates something that will last beyond their life. And they feel powerful. They feel important. They feel clever. And not many parts of our life make us feel like that. No. Uh, 
And I, I say, say to my staff over and over again, I don't give a rat's ass when people become knife makers after they do a course or blacksmiths or leather workers or yeah. whatever we're teaching sculptors. I don't care. I want them to feel proud though that they spend their time with you and and had experiences. This is a highlight for their lives. This is on their bucket list. That's how they should go away. And if yeah. you've done that, you've done well. You know, that's a, a quite a different attitude to other people that teach in the space. But I think then we're quite a different school. We do, you know, we get a very different kind of loyalty, a very different kind of result. And, you know, yeah, at the moment there's about a 1,000 people a year do a class here. It'll get, yeah, no, no idea where it'll end up. But as long as people are feeling good, then I'm happy. Yeah. Look, all of the things that you've done in your past is, is sort of coming together and coalescing into this space that you've got now, and it's really inspiring. It's good. Come and visit and hang out. Bloody will, man. Yeah. One, one of the things I, I really want to get to is, um, you know, Ali and I have been talking about trying to get some um, little self-contained cottages on there for artists in residence and have yeah. it so that people are busting their hump to come and teach here. <laughs> They, they, they want to sign up and they want to come here for a month and run run some classes and just, you know, live the dream, soak up the atmosphere. Yeah. Being able to play in a, in a beautiful space with engaged participants and, you know, come from wherever. I don't mind. You know, that's, that's where we want to get to. Look, um, there's plenty of precedents in the States for doing things exactly like that. I think Australia, you know, people could come from all over the world for that. For sure. Yeah. I'll come and no, do carving for you. They'll be able to play with our pet sheets then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You'll have goats as well and chickens. Yeah, we've got all that. Yeah, so that's it. It's a bit of a random farm down there, but it's it's quite pleasant like that. Yeah, yeah. Listen, um, tell everyone how they can get in touch with you and how they can come and do a course. Um, yeah, just go straight to our website, thawavalleyforge.com. You, you'll see it. There's not many other things in Thawa. So, um, <laughs> yeah, have a look there. I, I can be contacted through there. My phone number's on there, yep. email's on there. Drop in and say hello. We get people all the time. Come and see, see us. Yeah, just... Don't be a stranger. I think, you know, we have a great – we're very fortunate to have what we have and we have an obligation to share it. So if people drop in and say hello, that's um, that's a good thing. Yeah, and that was a really lovely little spot. And there's, uh, yeah, as you were saying before, there's a lot of really creative people there and there's a lovely bridge there that you can go across to come into the village too. That's right. That's yeah. right. You make some knife handles out of the old bridge and leftover bits. <laughs> that's good. Is that bridge still used? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they restored it a few bloody, years ago. Bloody good. Yeah. It's so rare to have bridges like that. It's an old wooden bridge. It's like, would have been built in the 1930s, I guess. Something. I 1890s. Oh, really? As far back yeah, as that? It's the, largest, it's the largest bridge of its kind left in Australia. Is that right? Yeah. Mm, there you go. Um, single lane, beautiful. It was It was to, um, yeah, the crossing I mean, Thar was founded because of underneath the bridge was a shallow way of going across yeah. so they could go to the pastures in the high country. And the bridge was the only way that you could cross the Murrumbidgee. Yeah. So, yeah, lovely spot there. Yeah. And we should actually just say it's not too far out of the Canberra proper, which Canberra is the national capital of Australia, as some people will know. It is beautiful. Yeah, we're 30 minutes from the centre of town and probably – 
you know, 500 years in, away in the <laughs> fields. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I actually know, I was talking to you on the phone when we first hooked up. I know Kappa Cumberland quite well because I worked for David at Phil Brown uh, yeah. when I was at art school. Yeah, look, I know all those. I know that little shed where the the speaker's chair was made and stuff. That's where we worked. Yeah, well, it's full of rats now and got a leaky roof and asbestos and all the rest of it. But um, oh, well. the writing where he wrote his notes is still on the asbestos line wall. <laughs> That's right. Um, but phone numbers and songs that he liked. And yeah, stuff the songs that he, that he likes. I know. I know the I don't songs. know if I want to rip it off and preserve it, though, because it's, um, it's a little bit toxic. <laughs> is it? Yeah, well. Yeah. Ah, oh, well, David Upfield, if you're listening, you better go and get those bits quick because they're about to go. Yeah, well, soon. A couple of years. Yeah. Awesome. All right, mate. Look, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. I really, really appreciate it. Have a great day. You too, mate. See ya. Mm-hmm.